Heavenly Father, we come before you, and this morning we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word teaches us the truth. We pray that as we study your word today, that you would open our hearts, you would open our minds, open our thoughts, so we would see Jesus, we would understand your word better, and we'd follow harder after you. We think about those who are going through difficult times, and in particular, we pray for Sherry Cooker right now as she's struggling in many ways, it seems like maybe even wrestling for her life um, right now with her pulmonary issues and her kidney issues. We ask that you would show mercy and grace to her and bring her healing, if that be your will. And we thank you that uh, if you choose to take her home, that she has victory through Jesus. Thank you for that. Now I ask that you would guide me as I seek to teach and help me to teach well. We ask this in the name of Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. If you've been watching the news, you cannot help but have followed this whole story about Gabby Petito's murder and her fiancé, Brian Laundrie, who's running. And the longer he runs, the more guilty he looks. Isn't that true? Oh, yeah, I got a big amen out of that one. Okay. Well, this has really captivated the nation's interest. And one of the reasons it's done that is because nobody wants to think that this guy is going to get away with murder. I mean, there's an incense, there's a justice sense inside of each one of us that we think people shouldn't get away with those kind of things. Justice should be served, right? Yeah. Well, if you feel that way, and I'm sure all of us do, that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to be talking about this theme of ultimate justice. And does, do people ever actually really get away with anything? So I'd like you to take out your Bibles, turn to Jude verse 14. That's where we're going to pick up our study. Also, make sure you take out your sermon outlines, because uh, we're going to be filling in the blanks as we go through this. Just a reminder for those of you who are new, uh, the book of Jude that we've been studying as a church family is about this theme of apostasy. Apostasy is just a big fancy word. It means to have known the truth about Jesus Christ, maybe to even at one time have professed to believe in Jesus Christ, but then to have turned and walked away from Jesus Christ, which the Bible says is a very bad place to be. The Bible is clear that every problem in this world comes from sin. Every single thing, war, famine, sickness, it all comes from sin. And there is only one solution for sin, and that is Jesus. So to turn away from Jesus is to turn away from your only hope in this world. So it's a very dangerous thing to turn away from him. But Jude is not just about apostasy in general. As we've seen, it's about a particular kind of apostasy in particular. Those are people who have actually turned away from Jesus, left Jesus, but they actually stay in the church and then try and pull away other people away from Jesus in the church with them. So these people, what they are is they are worse than murderers. Murderers just take somebody's physical life. These are people who are trying to steal away other folks' eternal life, which is a very, very serious thing to do. Now, we've already been studying what does this look like in Jude's day, but you may wonder, what are these kind of people, these apostates who are in the church, who are trying to pull other people away from Jesus, who are actually worse than murderers, look like in 
our day. And as we've seen many times, these are called liberals. <laughs> liberals theologically. People who are involved in churches and denominations and universities. And they'll say, well, we believe the Bible, but only part of it is true. We get to change the parts that we don't think are right. Or we believe Jesus, he's just maybe one of the ways, not the only way. People like the Jesus Seminar, which was a group of theological liberals that got together and they decided to say, we're going to say which parts of Jesus' parables are actually true and which parts are not. It was sort of like cutting coupons out of the newspaper. That's literally what their Bible looked like when they were done. Like, what right do they have to do that? These are the kind of people that Jude warns us about. Last week, when we were studying Jude in verses 11 through 13, what we looked at in that section was Jude told us the way these kind of um, false teachers, these apostates work. And we studied it from history. We looked at Cain, you remember, and we, then we looked at Balaam, and we looked at Korah. And Jude said the way they worked in the past will be the same techniques they'll use in the present. And then at the very end, just briefly, what we looked at was Jude's midrash. Essentially, he said, let me show you what their life adds up to. And he just had a list of things, just, just hammered it right through. Remember, they're like waterless clouds, always making promises but never delivering. <laughs> they're like trees without fruit, all kinds of energy, all kinds of time, all kinds of money is put into them but they never actually make a return on the investments and give anything back. They're like shooting stars. They appear on the horizon really bright for a brief period of time, but then they burn out and go off into utter darkness forever. Now, that's what Jude said these people are like. That's the end of their earthly life essentially amounts to nothing good, zero positive benefit for this world and for other people. That's what we finished on last week. And as we get to this week in verses 14 through 16, Jude moves from looking at the end of their earthly life to looking at the state of their eternal life. And let me tell you, folks, it is not pretty. So if you have your Bibles, make sure they're turned to Jude, verses 14 through 16, which is our text today. Stand out of reverence for the word of God as they read this text. It says, it was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they've committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They're loudmouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. That ends the reading of God's word. You can be seated. I'm going to handle this study a touch differently than I typically do. Typically we dive right into uh, the text at hand and then exposit it. I'm going to do something a little different. We're going to back out. And look at this theme of judgment, because God's judgment is what is talked about in these verses. We're going to look at what God teaches about judgment from the whole Bible, and then we'll come back and see what God's teaching about judgment here in the book of Jude. We're going to spend most of our time covering this theme of judgment in the whole Bible, because it'll give us the necessary backdrop 
the necessary canvas that we need to be able to lay these verses of Jude on top of so we can see the significance of what Jude is actually saying. So, following along in your outlines, the point number one, what does the Bible teach about God's judgment? And God's judgment is a theme throughout the whole Old Testament. It's also talked about in the New Testament. The one who talks about God's judgment more than anyone actually is Jesus. Jesus speaks about hell more than anyone. And I think this is ironic because the only one who can save us from God's judgment is the one who talks the most about God's judgment. Look at some of the things Jesus says. Matthew 10, 28. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Folks, this past year, everyone was living in fear. It's called fear of COVID. You know, we had one, two, maybe even three masks on our face. We shut down an entire country out of fear of contracting this disease. And yet Jesus would say, that's not the real thing to fear. Fear the one who can soul both body and soul into hell forever. Don't just fear earthly death. Fear God's judgment. You know, our sin can be forgiven. Death can be a good thing, not a bad thing. But fear what happens in eternal judgment and damnation. Matthew 25, 46 Jesus says, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. According to Jesus, there's only two options for all of eternity, either punishment or life. There is no third option. Incidentally, these are not temporary options. They are permanent options, eternal life or eternal punishment. The only way, incidentally, to experience eternal life is through Jesus. That is how we have eternal life. Now today, it's not very fashionable to talk about these two options. And if it is talked about, if we only talk about eternal life and sort of assume that everybody is experiencing eternal life when they die. I mean, go to funerals. What do you hear people say? Well, at least they're not suffering anymore. When in reality, for many people, it's just the reality that their suffering has just begun now that they've died. Eternal punishment has begun. Sometimes you hear people say, well, at least they're out of their misery. But the grim reality is maybe their misery has just begun if they've died in their sin apart from having trusted in Jesus Christ. There is no middle ground, either eternal punishment or eternal life. These are the words of Jesus. Now, if you were with us during our hell series, you'll remember we talked about death for the Christian. Death for the Christian is actually a good thing. The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, which is better by far. But for those who die apart from Christ, the scriptures are clear that right now they go to a place named Hades, talked about in Luke chapter 16. It's a place of suffering where people await until the final day of judgment when they are judged and ultimately sent to the lake of fire. That's the biblical picture. Now the next thing I'd like to mention is this. The Bible talks about a specific judgment at the end of time. 
sometimes when we talk about God's judgment, we think of it as a little bit like a sowing and reaping thing. And it's true. When you sin, you will suffer. The Bible says there's consequences built into sin that you naturally experience when you choose to sin. The Bible is also clear that when people sin, sometimes God brings judgment on that sin in space and time. Isn't that exactly what God did to his people Israel when they rebelled against him consistently? But the other truth is this, that there is a specific final time of end of, of, excuse me, a specific final time of judgment at the end of human history. It's a judgment for all sin. Not a judgment in time, but there's a final time end judgment at the end of time. The scriptures speak about this in Acts verse so, chapter 17. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance by assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Jesus, who rose in the middle of history, the Bible says, will be the judge of all human beings at the end of history. Romans chapter 2 verse 5 says this, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. People think that if they can commit a crime, but they don't get caught by the police or by the authorities, they get away with it. Where the honest truth is that's just not true. According to this verse, you may be able to escape justice on earth, but no one can escape justice at the end of time when they stand before Jesus at the great and final judgment. In fact, all that happens on this life when people escape justice or even when they commit, when they commit sin and they escape justice, all they are doing is storing up, storing up God's wrath for the great and final day when they are judged in front of Jesus. So the honest truth is, folks, nobody gets away with anything. Even if you think you get away with it in this life, and Brian Laundrie doesn't get caught and say he is guilty of murder, someday he will stand in front of Jesus, and Jesus is the one he will answer to, and there'll be no questions about what happens, and justice will be served. Romans chapter 2, verse 16, it says this, On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. On that day of the great and final judgment, the end of human history, when people stand in front of Jesus, it will not just be the public things that we have done wrong that will be judged by Jesus, but the private things. The secrets of our own hearts will be laid bare and judged by Jesus. Jude verse 6. In the angels who did not stay within their own positions of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. Jesus' judgment at the end of human history is not just for human beings, it also is for angelic beings. Because at that time, justice will be served for all sin. 
And Jesus will do away with all sin once and for all. Incidentally, this great day of final judgment will be general and it will be public. Sometimes people think that you you die and you go to hell and that's sort of a a private thing and nobody really knows about your sins and you suffer in, in, in silence or in solitude. And in one sense, that is probably true, at least immediately after death. But the Bible is also abundantly clear that at the great and final day, at the end of human history, when everyone stands before Jesus, that will not be a private time. That will be a public time of judgment for every single human being. Look what it says in Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and before him will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate people one from another as a a shepherd separates the sheep from the the goats. Once again, we see there are how many groups? Two. It's a general judgment because Everyone from human history will be there. It's a public judgment because he is separating sheep from their goats. Now, the book of Revelation, it sort of expands upon this and builds upon this. And it's a very familiar passage, but I think it's worth reading. It says this, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, which is the second death, the lake of fire. So let me give you a few points here. First of all, we see this is a public judgment because all people are there. People are judged by the book of deeds, basically on what they had done in this life. So whether you like it or not, guess what? Each one of us has our own YouTube channel. It's all being recorded, what we have done, whether it is sinful things or whether it is good things. And we'll be judged that day based on what we had done. But here is the good news. Ultimately, what determines our presence, either in the lake of fire or what determines our presence in the new creation with God, the Father, and the Son, is not what we have done that is recorded in the book of our deeds. It's if our book, if our name is in the book of life. If we have trusted in Jesus Christ, our Savior, who has died in our place for our sin. If your name is in the book of life, you will be with Jesus, the new creation, the new heavens, and the new earth. But that book of deeds still um, impacts us. What we have done after we have trusted in Jesus determines the degree of our reward in heaven or the degree of our ability to serve Christ in all of eternity. But if we haven't trusted in Jesus, 
what's written in the book of our deeds determines the degree of our suffering in the lake of fire. So it does matter how we live. Next point. By the way, at this time, God will be the judge. Hebrews 12, 23 says that. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God who is the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Incidentally, God is the only one who possesses the criteria necessary to be the wise judge at this time, the good judge at this time, and the just and fair judge at this time. That's good. Incidentally, Romans chapter 2, verse 2 says this about God's judgment. We know that the judgment of God falls rightly on those who practice such things. This idea of falls rightly means that God is going to be a just judge, a fair judge, not a partial judge. Doesn't let anybody, you know, doesn't show favoritism and doesn't show bias one way or the other. So no lawyer is needed at this final judgment because God is the perfect judge. But then when you get to John 5.22, we find this one. For the Father judges no one, but has given all the judgment to the Son. While God the Father rightfully has the ability to be the just, right, and fair judge, God the Father has delegated this final judgment at the end of history to Jesus the Son. In other words, the one who has suffered and died for our sin becomes the one who judges all people who have rejected his payment for their sins. John 5.27 tells us this. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. The reason God the Father, at least another reason God the Father, has delegated this great and final judgment to God the Son is because God the Son took on human flesh. God the Son lived like you and me. He understands the temptations that you and I face. He was tempted in every way just as you and I are, but without sin. So he can be the perfect judge who understands us in every way. Acts chapter 10 verse 42 says this, And he has commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. So often we hear in the church that what we're supposed to do is go out and tell our friends that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Uh, that's not quite the picture. The picture is that God does love you. He sent his son Jesus to die for you, to pay for your sin in full. But by the way, Jesus came the first time to pay for our sin. But he's coming back a second time, and he will be the judge whom we will stand before to give an account for our sin. Either he will be our judge on the final day, or he will be our savior today. We need to make a choice. Now, the next thing I should point out here is the Bible promises, the Bible's promise of a final judgment is really intended by God to be a warning. I mentioned this earlier, that people fear COVID, uh, that people are fearing what's going on on the southern border, and maybe MS-13 gang members are going to come across and, and ravage people in our country. And those are full and legitimate and just fears. But quite honestly, 
those fears may never realize or come to realization in our life. We may never get COVID, vaccinated or unvaccinated. We may never have someone who crosses our southern border illegally even impact our life in any way. But the honest truth is that every single one of us will die at one point or Jesus will come back. Every single one of us will stand before Jesus at this great and final judgment where our lives will be judged perfectly, our lives will be judged completely, our secrets will be judged. Nobody can avoid this. So this should motivate us to repent. Should motivate us to trust in Jesus who came the first time to save us, offers to forgive us fully, completely, if we would simply trust in him and make him our savior. That Jesus would be our savior, not just our judge. Now, the Bible promises we will be in resurrected bodies for the final judgment. It says this in John 5, 29, and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Sometimes I hear people say, how can you be so close-minded to say that Jesus is the only way to be saved? What about all those good and religious people who are part of the Buddhist religion? What about those good and religious people who are part of Islam and Muhammad? How can you be so close-minded? It's real simple. The Bible is abundantly clear. There is a judgment at the end of history, and Jesus is in charge of it. Muhammad will be there. Buddha will be there. Well, they'll be being judged by Jesus, not standing with Jesus. And I can prove that to you. Muhammad died, stayed dead. Buddha died, stayed dead. Jesus died, rose back to life. Not just regular life, but resurrection life. The Bible says a completely new kind of life. A body that will not die. A body that will not get weak. The only one who can create life out of death is God himself. So don't let anyone tell you how can you be so closed-minded to think that Jesus is the only way. Because Jesus is the only judge at the end of history. And the Bible is abundantly clear, by the way, that it wasn't just Jesus who has a resurrected body, but his body is a prototype for what will be our resurrected body. That at the great judgment, at the end of history, every single one will be raised from the dead. They will all get resurrection bodies. Everyone will have them. Our bodies at that time will not rot. They will not corrupt. They will last forever which, by the way, is a really good thing when we're going to be in the new creation, worshiping and serving Jesus. But it's a really bad thing if the ultimate final resting place for you is called the lake of fire, where the suffering never ends and the body never fails. And that's the biblical picture. Now, this is a good question here. Let me get into this topic. Does everyone, everyone in hell experience it the same way? The answer is no. The only way for anyone to be in heaven, the only way to be in the new creation, is for your name to be in the book of life, which we saw that earlier in Revelation 20. But we will all be judged by the book of our deeds. As Christians, 
Our deeds will determine our rewards in heaven because our sins have been forgiven by Jesus. But to those who die apart from Christ, their deeds will determine their degree of suffering in the lake of fire. Hell is not one size fits all. Hell is a just response to sin. That means the greater the sin that people have committed in this life, the greater their degree of eternal suffering in the lake of fire in the next life. Because hell is fair, hell is just. But there is something that most of us have forgotten about. There is something that causes a greater degree of suffering in hell than the seriousness of our sin in this life. It's our rejection of a Savior. Let me show you. Matthew eleven twenty one. 21. It says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it'll be more bearable on the day of judgment, this is what we're talking about, for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Chorazin, Bethsaida, they're near Capernaum. These are small Jewish towns that prided themselves in being so much better than everyone else out there. Jesus had done all kinds of miracles right in those towns in front of people's faces. People saw Jesus heal the sick. He saw the, they saw the miracles. Yet in spite of seeing all the evidence that Jesus is who he claims to be, they rejected him. Tyre and Sidon were Phoenician cities that were very sinful pagan cities, far from God cities. They were the Las Vegases of that day. And Jesus says, you know, it would better be better on the day of judgment to be a person who's far from God, extremely sinful, living in Tyre and Sidon, than to be somebody who's looking like Mr. or Mrs. Goody Two-Shoes, living in Chorazin and Bethsaida and seen my miracles and rejected them. The hottest parts of hell are not reserved for those who have been the greatest sinners, but been the ones who have had the most exposure to the gospel and rejected the Savior. That's what the scripture says. Just to underline that point, a little later, Matthew eleven twenty four. But I tell you, it'll be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Remember Sodom and Gomorrah? We studied a few weeks ago when we did homosexuality and hell. We're talking about these guys were into extreme sexual morality, homosexuality, homosexual rape. Jesus says it'll be more bearable on the day of judgment for them than for you who have known the gospel, who have heard the gospel, who have seen the miracles and rejected them. Like I said, the hottest parts of hell are reserved for those who know the gospel truth but reject the gospel truth. Luke 12, same thing. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand all the more. The more you know about the gospel, the more you know about the Bible, the more you know about what Jesus has done for you, 
and you reject it, the more guilty you are, the more guilty we are, and the more severely we deserve punishment to reject Jesus and to walk away from Jesus. One more point here. What about, what about people who have never heard the gospel? Will they be in hell? The Bible is very clear. The answer on this is yes. The only way to not be in the lake of fire is to have asked Jesus Christ to forgive our sins. That is the way our name is in the book of life, which is why, by the way, we take so seriously here at Crosswinds that we are about reaching people with Jesus. There's only one or two options, Jesus said, either eternal punishment or eternal life. This is why we reach people with the good news of the gospel, so they may experience eternal life. Now, um, think about it this way. Those who have not heard the gospel message, when they spend time in hell, their suffering is less than those who have heard the gospel message but have rejected it. Look what um, the writer of Hebrews says. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? The writer of Hebrews says that if you knew the Old Testament law and you intentionally rejected it, it was a severe death for you. You died without mercy. How much worse to know the truth of the gospel and what Jesus has done for you and to reject that. Now, I just want to start to bridge back to Jude here. This is where the bridge comes back because I've painted the canvas I need to build upon. Follow this logic. If someone dies and they've never heard the gospel, they've never heard about God's law, they are still judged by their own conscience, which knew what was right or wrong. And obviously they've sinned. So they go to the lake of fire, but their experience in the lake of fire is, would you call it, the least of all. The least suffering of all. Not that that's least, but get my point. Now if you have your conscience when you die, and you also have God's law, so you have much more abundantly and clearly knowing what is right and wrong, and you choose to violate it, well, your experience in Hell is worse. If you have your conscience, God's law, plus you have exposure to the gospel of Jesus Christ and how you can be completely forgiven by what Jesus has done, and then you reject Jesus, your suffering in hell is even worse yet. But take this one step further. You have your conscience that tells you right and wrong. You have God's law, which tells you right and wrong even more explicitly. You have the truth of the gospel of what God has done for you for Jesus and you reject that but you stay in the church and then try and pull other people away from Jesus and function as a spiritual murderer within the church of Jesus. What do you think your eternal state is like? 
the hottest, most hideous places in hell itself are reserved for these people. That is what the Bible would be teaching us about this. That is the backdrop we need to know when we look at what Jude says about the eternal state of these apostates who have turned away from God and are turning other people away from God. So let's bridge back to Jude. What does Jude teach us about God's judgment? Number one, the final day of judgment, it will come. He says this, It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones. Let's pause for a moment. Enoch, who is this guy? You go look in the book of Genesis, Genesis, you'll see his name. He is the seventh one from Adam, seventh generation. Uh, He was a godly man that lived in a very ungodly time, yet he walked with God. And the interesting thing is you look at him in the genealogy list, he says he walked with God and then he was no more. He didn't die. He's one of the very few people that God brought directly home to heaven. Now in this day, when Jude is writing, there's a number of, we call, extra-biblical books running around. Uh, Two of the popular ones were ones called First Enoch and Second Enoch. Incidentally, the Jews never considered those books part of Scripture. The Christians never considered them part of Scripture. Um, But supposedly what First and Second Enoch had in them were the writings and teachings of Enoch which it's possible that some of those things in the book did come from Enoch. Most likely, a bunch of it was fiction. Why do I say that? Well, Enoch was pre-flood. So if whatever he said had to be on the ark and make it all the way through. So most likely, some of this is fiction. But Jude takes a quote out of the book of Enoch, and since he's writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we know that this quote is true. And he says in this quote, But behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones. In other words, guess what? Jesus is coming back. It's going to happen. And this has been, God's been talking about this for a long time. While this quote comes from Jude, the next to last book in the New Testament, if it was said by Enoch, It's one of the first pieces of prophecy in the Old Testament that God is coming back. And by the way, he says here, he's not going to be coming alone. He's going to come back with 10,000 of his holy ones. That means that God is coming back with his mighty angels. We can see this spoken about in 2 Thessalonians. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven and with his mighty angels in flaming fire. And what will happen? Inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And that's the same thing that Enoch says. That Jesus will execute judgment on the ungodly when he comes back and solve the problem of sin. Back to Jude. To execute judgment on all is what Jesus is going to do when he comes back and to convict all of the ungodly of all of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way 
and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. In other words, Enoch said this a long time ago. What makes this interesting, most likely from what we can tell, is these false teachers were not just leaving Jesus, but they were leaving what you and I would call the canon, the acceptable books of Scripture. It seems like they were throwing in additional books, one of which was probably first Enoch. And Jude says, by the way, even the book you want to throw in, first Enoch says that Jesus is coming back. And he's coming back to deal with the ungodly people just like you. Remember what we've learned about these people? They love sexual immorality and sexual sin. They love to reject authority, undermine authority in the church. They're ungodly people. In fact, Jude says some more things about their character. They are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires, loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. The point is that Jesus is coming back, and Jesus is going to de- coming back to deal with the problem of sin once and for all. And these people, <laughs> that is what they're into. Sin. This So why they reject and walk away from Jesus, the truth is that one day they will stand in final judgment in front of Jesus. Now, how do we apply this? Two things, quickly. One is that I know that in any church on a Sunday morning, there are those of you here who have walked with Jesus for years. But because of the busyness of life, the hardness of life, maybe your walk with Christ is not that fresh. Maybe you find yourself struggling with things like creation and evolution and things the world tells you and things the Bible tells you. I just want to say this to you. Whatever you do, I beg you, do not walk away from Jesus. Do not turn away from Jesus. May Jesus always be your Savior and not be your judge. The second thing I would say is this morning, if you are here and you do not know Jesus... I just presented to you what the Bible says very clearly is the way that world history will end up. Every single one of us will one day stand in front of Jesus and give an account for how we have lived. The only way for that moment to be a great moment in your life instead of a terrible moment in your life is to trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. If you have not done that, will you do that this morning? Confess your sin to Jesus. Ask Jesus to forgive your sin and be, ask him to be the Lord of your life. The Bible says you will be born again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the truth of final judgment as we looked at this grand sweep of biblical history and what it says about that. I thank you that there is a book of life that our names can be written in simply by confessing our sin to you, Jesus, and trusting in you to save us. Thank you for being so good and offering to be our Savior. So at the last and final day, you are not our judge. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.